Hello and welcome to Senior Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Senior's Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with the leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Alex Langa, founding partner of Inflection based out of Berlin. Prior to launching Inflection, Alex held roles at Google and Index Ventures, where he leveraged his technical acumen and deep understanding of hardware to begin exploring cutting-edge and non-consensus blockchain investing. Now at Inflection, Alex invests into both the infrastructure and application layer as the firm continues to build its brand as a premier European-based early-stage venture fund. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of The Senior Studio. I am your host, Ben Jacobs of Senior Capital. Today's guest is Alex Langa of Inflection. Alex, how's it going? Hi, going going great, Ben. Thanks for, for having me. I appreciate the, the invitation. Yeah, I've been a, a big fan of, of you and everything you've been doing at Inflection since you first, since I first got introduced to you, probably like 18 months ago. And I'm glad that we're able to get this podcast recorded as I think, you know, you're a a European based GP, but with some of the best, most technical insights into some of the more complex topics of crypto and their intersection with the traditional compute world. And so I'm very excited to, to introduce you to probably a more US based audience. And I think we'll have a lot of fun here today. So without further ado, would love to uh, to kick it off with, you know, hearing from you. What's your background, your experiences, and what led you to inflection? Yeah, cool. Happy to take that one. So I grew up in, in Western Germany, small city close to Hanover called Hemlin. Some of you might have heard about the Brothers Grimm story about the Pied Piper that originates in, in that very place. I was born into a a working class, but very tech forward family. So my dad used to be an uh, electrician, a uh, sysadmin and and self-taught developer in the the late 80s, early 90s. So I was very lucky to be introduced to computers at uh, age six and also the the internet very early on. So yeah, I basically grew up on on online forums, on uh, ICQ, on Napster, often was the guy who was selling music and, and and video games on the on the schoolyard and yeah a little bit later decided to study law and economics also in, in western germany at the university of osnabrück which was very well known for its ip rights and competition law chairs where I also did a lot of research and collaborated with the professors directly and yeah after graduating in 2012 i Got my first job at Google in Berlin, an e-commerce startup that has been acquired by Google a few months earlier, to be more precise, and had a yeah pretty generalist product and, and biz dev related role. I was working on a number of larger integrations with, for example, travel portals. There was a large corporation with eBay I was responsible for, and yeah, later on joined an early stage fintech company called Pepperbill 
building an iOS-based operating system, targeting the hospitality sector. And after that, I got an offer from a venture fund called Early Bird. So that company was, was sold in an M&A transaction. I was traveling Asia for a while and yeah, then got into venture, working with Early Bird for about three years. And yeah, at Early Bird, I started to develop a very deep curiosity for cryptography-enabled innovation that was going back for once to my studies or legal studies as I was writing a thesis about intellectual property rights applied to digital art, basically, that wasn't scarce back then. So there were a lot of questions of what exactly is the subject that is being protected by these provisions. Even for photography, that was a big question, if it's like the actual film or if it's the printed version of the, of the photography itself. And there are a lot of like related questions for, for digital, digital art. And I also used to work as a data protection commissioner during my days at Google and beyond work that was exposing me to a degree to cybersecurity and, and compliance. Those were the days of, of Ed Snowden, the first large-scale data breaches happened. So I tried to stay close to that universe. And yeah, as you know, Berlin has been a very strong hub early on, the Ethereum Foundation was operating out of Berlin. Vitalik lived here uh, for, for a while around the launch of the of the network in 2014-15. Gavin Wood was here, Jutta Steiner, a number of others. And uh, yeah, through Early Bird in, in very early 2015, I got introduced to some of these people and was just very excited by what they've been doing. Trent McConaughey, a long-term friend, for example, was building a company called Ascribe on, on Bitcoin. That was the first, let's say, yeah, digital arts and, and rights management platform using the, the Bitcoin chain for, for information provenance and, and timestamping, basically. Yeah, and I decided to stay in this ecosystem for quite a while, worked for three years with Early Bird, was involved in all kinds of transactions, learned the craft of, of venture investing from, from a partnership that has been doing this for more than 20 years. The firm started in the in the late 90s as one of the most established pan-European firms. And uh, yeah, later on, got introduced to Eric Voorhees, who co-founded Shapeshift. And I was leading the Series A transaction for Early Bird, what got me even deeper into the, into the cryptosphere. And with Early Bird, we were a little bit limited in terms of geographical scope, as it was a primarily pan-European firm. So I wanted to work a little more internationally as this was still a very emerging scene where you couldn't really take into account borders and, and geographies as a, a selection criterion. And yeah, ultimately ended up leading the, the crypto efforts at Index Ventures for a while, one and a half years roughly in the last bear cycle. And there we've seen a lot of companies in very early stages that weren't a, a great fit for, for indexes, measures being a multi-stage fund. But we've seen a lot in, in Series A stage as well. Companies like MakerDAO or Dapper Labs or OpenSea Analysis are, are coming to mind. But yeah, for various reasons, yeah, didn't, didn't lean into that technology trend as much as I was uh, hoping for. So ultimately, I decided to start my own fund that was in early 2019. I teamed up with a long-term friend, Robert Shapiro, who also brought in our VP Finance, Rebecca Mahoney, and our in-house counsel, John Levin. And uh, yeah, that was when we started the firm early 2019 with $1 million of friends' family money. And uh, yeah, really got, got started. Thank you for that overview. Seems that you've been 
tinkering in different areas of tech for a long time now. And, and I'm glad that you stumbled upon crypto and for it to have resonated with you. What has it been like launching Inflection? You are investing out of your second fund now. So what is the, the firm's thesis? How has it evolved? And where are you at now? Yeah, there's quite a quite a lot to to unpack. So I'll start at the at the beginning and sequence it chronologically a bit. So the early years have been particularly tough on on, on all kinds of measures, financially, mentally, and that was because we were getting started at a time when crypto had a, a very deep, also extended the bear cycle. I was facing an extended bear cycle, which was then coupled with the global pandemic. So once we had the first commitments for the new fund in like late 2019, early 2020, this reality sank in and we basically had to live with another like a one-year delay to close close a second fund. So that was a very, very tough period, but we managed to survive and were very much focused on the initial kind of angel vehicle, build up 14 positions, had some, yeah, some decent uh, returns on those. And uh, once the yeah, pandemic was playing less of a role in, in global macro and in our fundraising environment. We managed to close the second fund at 40 million. Then actually having the, the opposite problem. So this vehicle was about 3x oversubscribed and yet we decided to keep it purposefully small, kept it at 40M and yeah, I've been focused on limited partners based out of the US as I was raising in Europe for about a year, most of 2019 and the market wasn't ready the U.S. still has a, a leg up in terms of adapting to new technology cycles, be more onto, uh, entrepreneurial, more open-minded. Uh, it's just a very different capital ecosystem. That's also why we decided to structure the fund in the U.S. and are now working with a long list of institutional backers, such as Accolade, Evanston, Hat, Hat Capital, Isomer coming to mind, lots of family offices, and then individual innovators in our sphere, like uh, Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, Eric Voorhees, and a long list of general partners at other venture funds touching all kinds of innovations from deep tech to computational biology to SaaS and marketplaces. So we created this firm with the vision of staying true to a boutique-style DNA with a small core team, but be extended by a vast network of, of experts and innovators in various different fields. And that was also hooked into our original thesis, which was about creating an, an open economy that was an overarching framework. So we've seen everything through that lens, starting with open money, followed by open finance, later on open media, open science, and, and other related innovations, really cross-vertical, cross-industry, but often applying cryptography and, and crypto-native technologies to, to apply it to new problem sets, really. And by now we're in a, I'd say, some sort of a, a transition phase, currently working on an updated version of that thesis, basically revisiting which components and which assumptions we were making in 2019, 2020 do still hold up and which ones need to be, need to be overwritten as um, in, in our minds we are currently yeah, living through a very big shift in terms of yeah, the, the global world order and yeah, the, the overall macro setup what looks fundamentally different and will have an impact 
uh, on many things we're doing from the LPs we, we are able to raise from the effects on the, the current portfolio as well as future investments we might do. Got it. Yeah, I'd love to double click into that last point. So obviously there are wars on, on two fronts in Israel and Palestine, Ukraine and Russia. There is challenges in the, the global economy. The macro environment is very unsettled. But you're an early stage venture fund. So you would think that that type of investing would be inoculated from those types of larger macro factors. But they're important to consider as they impact exit opportunities, competitive uh, dynamics. Curious how you overlay macro into your decision making as an early stage venture investor. Yeah, I think that's a, a very valid uh, question question to ask, and and I agree that this is only one out of out of many many factors that we're taking into account. So it doesn't play a, I would say the the biggest role in our assessment, but it has an an impact on a lot of the things we are we are doing. And I guess the first answer would be, or the first question to ask would be, should one take these developments into account at all? Right, and I guess for the last twenty plus years, the very clear answer would have been no. Right, so everything was, the the entire economy, geopolitics was all on on autopilot. Nobody really needed to care about these things, as everything seemed rather stable and and predictable. Low interest rate environment, except for some local conflicts, not many geopolitical disruptions. But now, in a sequence of events, started with the pandemic and going into Ukraine, Russia, you mentioned, now Israel, Middle East, there might be others at the horizon. But that's only the the, the like nation-state to nation-state uh, relationship. We also see a lot of internal developments that are more related to debt-to-GDP ratios, for example, monetary policy, high inflation, and yeah, other dynamics that are rooted in the in the rise and fall of, of empires. Ray Dalio has been writing a lot about the the internal and the, the external cycles, for example, highlighting these developments. And yeah, I basically think we, we live in a different different world now and we cannot ignore these things. So even though we have a very long time frame ahead of us, investing in pre-seed and seed stages, we also have to think in terms of milestones over the next two, three years, like what kind of attraction the market would expect from our portfolio companies and how these developments might affect demand. The other piece is, yeah, how it how it might affect some of our limited partners, very, yeah, U.S. centric limited partner base. So that's less of a challenge. I know about other managers having more capital, a capital community, in some parts of of Asia where this might might be more more problematic. And then also in terms of new investments, we think this this will have an have an effect. If you studied history just a little bit and looked up. Now, how markets were behaving in, in, in times of stagflation, for example, or in times of uh, crisis or outright wars. There were particular sectors uh, benefiting from these developments, often for half a decade, a decade, and, and others here being, being underwater. Uh, and that's something we, we try to feed into our models. So the way we look at the world is really in two large uh, steps, if you want. So one being the question of where to look at. So that's basically... For us, trying to identify technological 
or societal uh, inflection points that are shaping the markets of the of the future. Very high level framework of thought thesis basically. And the second step is more bottom up, where we look at companies case by case and identify exactly the the core points like team, product technology, markets, network effects, defensibility, these kinds of things. But then also, again, on a case by case basis, risks and and mitigation. And and in that category, there, there are things popping up around regulation, for example, that you also have to see in this larger macro context, right? So... It's not a coincidence that a lot of countries are are pushing for much stricter crypto regulations in the context of financial repression and controlling the flows of assets and financial means in in their economies to also yeah keep keep control over those assets and particularly in times of a crisis or or conflict so none of this would would surprise you if you were aware of some of the macro currents that were already starting to play out in uh, 2019 and and earlier, and then the the next question would then be okay if you have this two step system, how do you even operationalize this? Right, there's a million different factors, very hard to take everything into account, let alone put any weights behind it. So the way we try to do this is is rather pragmatic. So we do a lot of expert triangulations. Some of our limited partners are working in the like macro hedge fund environment. Some of them have very unique insights into into some of the trends and, and what is visible at the horizon that we benefit from. The other thing is just being curious and and reading a lot. So we follow some of the leading macro strategists, follow often like publications and and books put out by those people to get a little more depth. And then ultimately we need to get to some high level conclusions, basically say, okay, these are areas that might be disadvantaged in uh, in such a scenario and those are other areas that are more interesting for us on a long kind of decade plus time scale. Yeah, I read your thesis 2.0 doc that you published on Substack and I saw you referenced Marco Papik from Clock Tower Group. Clock Tower Group is actually based in LA. Uh, I've met Marco and I've read the book you referenced, Geopolitical Alpha. And it's interesting to think through constraints and where how investors should think through the constraints of of different sovereign entities as well as you know even on the smaller company-wide scale as to their decision making and incentives so i I really enjoyed reading that what are some of the other elements of thesis 2.0 as we think back on your your first few years of of operating inflection and as you're steering the ship going forward how else are you evolving the strategy and you know how you're trying to invest in the asset class? Right. Yeah, so I guess one one large point for us, one of the conclusions we we drew, like looking deeper into into some of these macro trends, was a stronger preference of of tough tech or even hardware enabled innovation. So there are a number of trends coming together. We are currently seeing one being this potential for a more capex-led cycle as you have yeah, times of geopolitical crisis, you have trade wars to a degree, scarcity of, of, of commodities driving up energy prices, particularly in Europe and the US, less so. But you also have a long history of underinvestment in, in, in physical infrastructure, not just bridges and, and transportation, but also, I think, computational 
infrastructure. So that is the core theme we are we are excited about. And, and inflection always have been. We always looked at crypto networks as a new type of open compute platform, basically. And yeah, now seeing this shift happening very, very gradually, where software has been eating the world was really the, the theme of the decade, uh, the last decade and, and longer. And now we, we start realizing that there will be as much more ne uh, innovation necessary in like physical infrastructure to drive the next wave of, of computational innovation. And that's really what the, what the modern world has been built upon, right? Semiconductors and our ability to drive up the compute power over many decades following, following Moore's law. Uh, and now we are starting to see some of the, the drivers of, of Moore's law decelerating and, and, and phasing out what will lead to larger problems over the next decade, decade plus. So that's like one, one big stream of, of inputs we are, we are trying to take into account. And the other one is more, more bottom-up or technology-driven, right? So the advancement of, of LLMs and their effect on software development and particularly the costs of software development will be very, very critical. So we, we might see software development costs come down by 80-90% over the next five years only. So everybody will be able to create software. It's going to be a very like software-abundant era. And once that is the case, we've seen this before with like websites, for example, where in the beginning it was quite easy to operate them and have high margins on whatever services you were providing. But at some point, the the power shifted towards distribution and you had a, a big uh, a time of, of aggregation through social social media networks or, or Google. And we believe the same might happen here where distribution is going to be way more relevant than the actual creation of software. And then also there will be very deep behavioral shifts in terms of how users interact with software. So today, most services are very, very granular, very sequential. You need to log into multiple different interfaces, for example, to, you know, to book a trip to, to Paris or so where you want to run a, a conference and you need to, you know, book flights, find accommodation, find a venue, find a restaurant, etc. And do this very in a very sequential manner, logging into various different services. And in the near future, we believe this will look fundamentally different, where you're basically working with intentions and tell a machine by using a natural language what exactly is the outcome you want. Like I have a budget of X, I want to go to Paris for these dates. I need a venue. Please go and yeah, give me give me two options, and then I I let the machine execute everything from here on. So. Yeah, we, we believe that yeah, software investing will at least in, in relative terms play less of a role and that the the focus of the tech ecosystem over the next few years will shift more towards hardware enabled innovation for those two two big reasons as the the scarcity in this world, right, will be for once distribution. So that's that's a very powerful channel to build meaningful companies. And then the other one will be access to raw compute and the other one access to high quality data. So those are currently the, the bottlenecks. That's where resources are scarce. And that's typically the, the recipe for building durable and meaningful companies. So I wanted to talk about how this all relates to crypto and blockchain, <clears throat> because, you know, I, you know, when people 
talk about crypto, they're like, oh, cryptocurrency, like a token or an NFT, or what is this L1 or L2? But when you're talking about hardware, to me, like the average person does not put two and two together about how we need better hardware and computational power in order to unlock some of the capabilities of the blockchain using as a, a euphemism. Can you touch on the implications of what you're looking at from a more CapEx-led cycle and how that would then cascade to maybe the infrastructure layer and then ultimately benefiting the, the user? Yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah very, very interesting topic to talk about is that's exactly bridging what we've done so far as a fund and the direction we are, we are headed towards for the foreseeable future. So to give you some some background, there were a number of hardware-enabled companies that we that we backed already out of the current funds. One being Foundation, an open-source consumer hardware company, starting with wallets and crypto wallets in a, in a classic classical sense, and then expanding into into other areas potentially. You know, con- consumer mining, two-factor authentication. There are a lot of ideas out there. And the other two were for once a company called CryptoSat using nano satellites as a compute infrastructure for cryptographic operations so you could use it for example to to generate randomness based on uh, space radiation you could use it for multi-signatures multi-signature schemes where one signer is based or, or sits on the on the satellite itself with the value proposition of being a, a trusted execution environment, basically a, a physical entity that lives up in space and is impossible to access physically without being monitored by ground stations, what what guarantees very unique security properties. And third company we backed more recently is a hardware acceleration company called Tabric Cryptography, basically creating a, a general purpose processor for cryptographic algorithms, zero-knowledge proofs or fully homomorphic encryption, for example, are currently very compute-intense, very expensive to run, and just not performant enough to accelerate them through smarter algorithms or or software only. So that's a a development we've seen already happening in in Bitcoin mining, right, where people were creating ASICs uh, at some point that were optimized for for SHA-256. We've seen it for... uh, AI acceleration, TPUs that then have been created by, by Google, TensorFlow. And this will be a, a parallel development here that we're seeing as like specialized silicon that is feeding into, into that trend. But there are a lot of other areas. For example, in the Bitcoin mining space, we've seen a lot of interesting innovation using mining as a mechanism for demand response and renewables-dominated energy grids where you can use miners as very modular, very flexible sources of, of demand to stabilize grids, for example. So that's that's like one big category we currently call resilience. So basically a set of technologies that are increasing the, computa- uh, the resilience of the computational fabric uh, of our world. So some of that might be related to defense or yeah, cyber, cyber security, cyber warfare, and in a defense uh, sense, Others, other innovations might be related more to, say, data markets. Another portfolio of ours is Tunan side, using a multi-party homomorphic encryption to share proprietary data sets 
without actually sharing them. So the data stays on-prem or on the server, addressed and uses never in, never in transit. And this technology allows the, the parties that are collaborating, for example, in healthcare, like pharmaceutical companies and, uh, and hospitals, to, to run their algorithms on top of those fully encrypted data without any, any leakage. So yeah, that, that's like one, one big category we call resilience of, of computation and the two others that we are now extending a little bit for once the category of scale. So that relates more to upholding Moore's law or at least keeping the, the costs of, of computation at a, at a reasonable level while scaling our like compounding compute power. So that is yeah, very, I'd say very much a, a frontier field with a lot of short-term optimizations that you can do on the level of how chips are actually packaged, the way how transistors are built. That's basically what we've done the last few decades. And this, this will probably continue for, for a few more years, but at some point we're going to hit yeah, some limitations that can't be overcome because they are like the laws of, of physics at nanoscale you have current leakage and heat dissipation that, that creates all kinds of problems. And that's already, I think, more of a consensus view than a, than a contrarian view that these drivers will phase out in the next decade. So that's an area we're increasingly looking into, yeah, specialized silicon as a, as a broader trend. And then more long-term, there might also be like entirely alternative compute methods and devices, such as photonic computation or quantum or morphic, there are all kinds of approaches in terms of yeah, combining memory and, and compute and overcoming the von Neumann's bottleneck. So that's there's a lot of exciting research topics starting to get implemented across the world. And Europe, there are a few very strong research institutions. But we see a lot of talent coming out, uh, and the same, obviously, in the in the US. So that's what we what we call scale. And the third big category is what we currently call flow. That's basically trying to address the the data bottleneck. There's some estimates and, and papers out there referencing a shortcoming of high quality data. So some of that can be overcome by using synthetically artificially generated data sets built upon existing ones we, we currently have. But at the same time, there are a lot of developments around sensors, for example, nanoscale or also hyperspectral imaging that are that are being implemented in, in, in satellites, for example, that open up a whole new field of, of data sets that can be embedded in the compute, computational landscapes of the future. And of course, also in terms of cryptography, right? So this is another big kind of more crypto native area we've been excited about for a while verification systems and improving systems often using zero-knowledge proofs basically to make commitments and claims about the data set that has been used or about a particular type of computation that has been run in the past without revealing any any details about the, the data set. So yeah, those are like in a nutshell the three big chunks we are, we are currently focused on. So scale of compute, upholding Moore's law, the other one Resilience, that's everything crypto-native. And the third one, flow, is focused more on, on data aggregation. Well, thank you for the categorization of those new themes. Very much enjoy the framing of scale, resilience, and flow. I wanted to take a step back 
as someone who's not in the trenches of crypto all day. And I've seen only L1s and L2s proliferate over the last few, few years. Like that's what's been driving the bulk of the value creation in crypto. But now, you know, block space is not as much of an issue. The root put is not as much of an issue. But no one is really using any crypto native dApps outside of the 100,000 crypto native folks that are primarily speculating. My question to you is, do we need this foundational infrastructure and do we need to be orienting venture dollars and founder mindshare to this infrastructure layer if the application layer is so sorely missing innovation and users? In many cases, it's hard to distinguish precisely between what exactly we mean by infrastructure, what exactly we mean by, by applications, as there are technologies that fall into, into both camps, right? If you look at Bitcoin, it's on the one hand an infrastructure technology, a settlement, programmatic settlement platform. On the other hand, you can look at it as an as an application to process payments and and secure your your wealth through distributed set of, of computers and miners. The second point I'd like to highlight is you know, how the relationship between infrastructure and applications does typically pan out in new technology cycles. A few years ago, there was an article, I think with the title, The, the Infrastructure Myth or, or Similar, from Nick Grossman at, at Union Square Ventures, where he made the case that as an entrepreneur, you're primarily looking to solve a particular problem, often creating an application. Once you start building this application, you run into limitations of the underlying infrastructure. So this could be throughput, this could be in, crypto, in crypto's case, also privacy, I think that is keeping out a lot of institutions or, or enterprises, particularly as you're leaking too much sensitive information. If your network of suppliers is exposed or salaries are exposed, other, other sensitive data sets. And then you try to overcome these limitations on the infrastructure side, uh, what then unlocks a new, a new set of, of applications. And actually... Couldn't agree more on this on the statement of the cryptosphere having been very much focused on foundational infrastructure, but we also have to take time into into consideration. Right, this ecosystem is still very very nascent. Bitcoin uh, was created 15 years ago, I think. The the white paper was published. Ethereum is is about nine years old, so we are still in the in the early innings. If you look at the developments of the internet cycle, the TCP IP protocols, when, when email came up, when the first when JavaScript was, in, was invented, the first websites came up, like all of this was like a multi-decade innovation cycle. And I think we, yeah, we need to be patient with this very transformative, very long-term technology cycle. But that said, yeah, I, I also agree that a lot of the use cases we've seen so far were mainly speculation driven, right? So we've seen the first wave of innovation really being DeFi as an as an ecosystem, programmatic financial services that are open source, that have a ton of uh, value propositions that cannot be replicated. The current state of financial technologies, and that's mainly standardization and composability. So all assets, no matter of generative art or tokenized real estate or carbon credits, do 
all of a sudden speak the same language and can be embedded in, in programmatic services. But indeed, we have a cold start problem, right? Composability only makes sense and only can be a, a value driver and a value proposition if there is a, a critical mass of, of services that you can plug together, basically, as, as legals. It's often, often a reference used in our, in our sphere. So, yeah, at, at Inflection, we've always been interested in, say, non, non-financial use cases of these technologies. And there, there are some still in their very infancy, but you can, you can see it coming. So one section would, for example, be decentralized social and even without speculation, there are some interesting use cases. We, in 2019, backed a company called AnyType that is building a tool suite for knowledge management using a particular type of data graphs and, and new infrastructures built on, on IPFS primarily that have unique advantages in, in terms of composability of these data sets, in terms of privacy, in terms of being local first and, and open source that many other Solutions like Notion or, or Rome Research, for example, cannot really keep up with. So that's that's like one area, non-financial speculation, where where we see an, an uptick in, in usage. So that's still, say, tens of thousands of users, a very high stickiness, and also non-crypto related at all. Like those are mainly people in academia. Those are students or small-scale organizations currently using this tool in an open beta stage, very early still. But that's something we are we are interested in. Again, falling into this whole concept of of resilience, as this is was very durable and uh, yeah, reflexive to any like outside world shocks. Another area, non non financial speculation, also more application driven. I would I would argue is, is decentralized science. So there we backed a, a company called Molecule in 2019 that is using the NFT standard to represent pre-patent stage bio-IP and thereby unlocking an entirely new market that didn't exist before. So you can think of it like a, an angel list for, for bio-IP. But the, the interesting innovation here is, isn't just that the, the IP is represented on-chain, but also the data sets underpinning that IP are attached to the NFTs and, uh, and stored on-chain or on, on IPFS and in that case, and that allows you uh, to have information and research provenance, so you can really create research graphs and trace back the the origin of, of these compounds that, that were coming to market. And also you can create a, an entirely new funding ecosystem that is currently being built bottom-up on the demand side with many of these emerging like investment DAO structures like VitaDAO focused on longevity or PsyDAO for psychedelics. HairDAO for, for hair loss, there, there are many others bootstrapping this, this ecosystem into existence that, again, has an element of financial speculation, quote-unquote, but it also has an element of, of research funding and actually yeah, propelling the work of, of scientists and scientific collaboration. And I, I hope that there will be much more, and that's exactly what we need, right? We've, we have been building a lot of infrastructure. You mentioned the layer twos. There's a lot happening in the ZK EVM space, there's a lot happening in, in terms of like ZK proving systems in, in general. And I think the next couple of years will be all about implementing these technologies into high utility applications across different industries. So that's really something we as a, as a community, as an industry need to prove 
to, to really justify our, our existence long term. So very, very much aligned with that point of critique, actually. Well, I, I very much am pulling for Molecule and LabDAO and especially HairDAO, as I, I definitely see myself thinning in it <laughs> and, and would love to see some success there. <laughs> Alex, this has been great. Really appreciate all of your insights. I want to dive into the spiciest part of our conversation. And I'm sure you have some good thoughts here. So what is your ghost pepper, hottest, spiciest take within crypto? <laughs> yeah, I guess we've we've already front run uh, that, that little bit with the last set of questions. I think one piece that might not be consensus view is that I believe we, at this point in time, as an industry, we don't deserve another bull cycle before we really manage to prove real utility and at least sticky products for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of users. We need to prove to run these services in a more sustainable way in terms of operations. Everybody realized that DAO structures have a lot of limitations, are very counterintuitive benchmarked against more hierarchical, small fast-moving startup companies, startup structures. And then also in terms of business model, I think there's a lot we, we need to improve in terms of fundamental value capture. So a lot of people are, are discussing uh, the next bull cycle uh, these days. I, I first think we, we don't deserve it. I think we first need to get some, some fundamentals right. Otherwise, we will get more harm than, than benefit out of another frenzy. I also think that Consumer use cases, that's probably quite contrary. And I know a lot of funds doubling down on consumer use cases, applications. I don't think that this is the will be the the maximal growth driver. I'm more interested in like alternative routes here, applying these technologies in an entirely new context. And the, the reason is at least in the Western world, it's just the the macro cycle, right? You you got probably higher for longer rates, you probably have Continuously, at least higher than 2% uh, inflation, you got a, a, a sphere, the sentiment of, I wouldn't say panic, rather pessimist outlooks with all these conflicts rising. So at least in my circles, and that's also underpinned by you know, some consumer research we've done, typically in, in times of stagflation, low growth, high, high inflation, you don't see a lot of consumer businesses succeed basically because the, the purchasing power is eroding and priorities are, are elsewhere. So that leaves us with the question, where else would we see growth, right? So B-size still in its very early innings. We believe that institutional adoption might play a role sooner than later, probably also not very contrarian, but I think we yeah, have to let go of the a lot of the idealism that many of us had in the in the early days, creating a new open financial system that is inclusive and openly accessible. As we see the world move into the opposite direction right now, we see homeland economies, we see subsidies, technology, export bans, the AI Act, the behavior of the of the SEC, like none of this is pointing towards more open globalized markets and more towards control. And at the same time, the resilience aspect kicks in, right? So yeah, that's that's another area where we see growth more from a resilience angle than a consumer speculation angle. A lot that I want to pull on there <clears throat> really quickly because we're running up on time. If you could just address your perspective 
on DAOs and what what the industry got wrong about that new, for lack of a better term, organizational structure as to DAOs being able to build valuable that like just creating value in general what what was the inaccuracy in both the the builders and the investors larger topic so first of all i think we have to distinguish between different levels of of services or what exactly can be governed as a DAO. like what is the the product or the infrastructure so in some cases i think this model is is pretty valid if it's very raw kind of protocol level infrastructure looking at Bitcoin primarily, right? If you make the case that Bitcoin is a DAO, that's probably the most functional of, of all DAOs because it's a very comparatively simple set of rules that has a, a vast ecosystem around it and we are not trying to manage any outside relationships with suppliers, with service providers or employees or, or any of that, right? So in some of the more more higher level services in, in DeFi and, and other areas, we've seen people actually building more like application type services that were behaving like startup companies as they tried to have employees or service providers. You know, they needed to to buy whatever an agency building a website. They needed uh, service. They needed to host the website. So all of these interactions with the outside world requires some kind of a legal structure you have to have in place. Otherwise, you cannot buy any services as a DAO is not a recognized uh, legal framework. So I think those were this was like one big problem that was interacting with the outside world without having a, a recognized legal entity. It's just huge, a huge limitation in terms of what you can do. The other aspect that relates less to the to the structure itself, but more to the way that the modus operandi is the way how we organized resources, how we took decisions, be it through on-chain votings or sub-DAOs. There were a lot of different mechanisms where people tried to address efficiency issues. And so far, I, I didn't see any of that work. I think very early pre-product market fit startup organizations, whatever is the is the final definition here, need to be run in a, in a particular manner in terms of iterating fast, taking decisions, having very high accountability, as opposed to having a bloated community of people that are not fully bought in, that don't have skin in the game, that are just doing this as a side gig and don't have context to, to even take any decisions. I think there was a lot of idealism and also coupled with ignorance on both ends, builders and, and investors. Final point on that maybe being that it also relates to the stage of the org, right? So once you have critical mass or you're a very established company that has millions, hundreds of millions of users and really develops into a, a public good, at that point, make, make, it might make more sense to consider these kinds of more open source, more inclusive, stakeholder-governed structures as there's way more yeah, governance risk at stake, so to say, in order to keep these systems neutral and, and inclusive. That's that's a few years out, I I believe. As someone who's spent a fair amount of time in the DAO world, I think all of those insights are extremely valid. I think we're seeing some of these later stage DAOs like MakerDAO and Uniswap and some of those original 
DeFi projects as as those DAOs are that the product is there and now some elements are being outsourced to the DAO. We're starting to see that next phase of more communal organization and, and whether it works or not come to bear. So I think it's an important to, to monitor that as that may implicate what the future of quote DAOs could look like on the earlier stage side. As you were talking, I Googled a new type of pepper that I'm excited to, to introduce to the audience. So Alex, what is your Trinidad Morogu scorpion spicy take outside of crypto? And just, just so everyone knows, this is the second hottest pepper behind the Carolina Reaper. So what is your, your Trinidad Morogu scorpion take outside of crypto? Yeah, I think that that's yeah something relating more to to compute infrastructure. I personally, based on on current research, believe that the the way we built computers over the last fifty years won't be scalable beyond the the next ten years. And I also believe that this is probably the most pressing challenge humanity is gonna face in in that time frame. And I believe so because. Computation is really the the bedrock of of human progress in all areas, be it in computational biology, be it in robotics, be it in in space travel. Anything we do is is requiring continuous improvements of of computation. Once that gets to a halt, the modern world as we know it will will stagnate across the world, and that's not dependent on any particular countries. That is holistically <laughs> applicable to to all of us. So I. I think that's a, a vast, massive problem. Very, very few people are are currently focused on. And yeah, as always, we we try to be very early and very problem centric in our in our thinking, our approach. And uh, yeah, very much looking forward to spend more time and uh, support innovators and hopefully solving this this very existential, deep rooted problem. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you for coming on the Senior Studio today. This was a great conversation, loaded with insights and a lot of topics that I personally want to dig into. Where can people follow along with you and Inflection's journey? Right. So we got a, a Twitter account that is Inflection XYZ. We, I got a personal account, but that's probably less relevant. It's Alex Langer underscore BC. Yeah, you'll find me uh, online on all kinds of platforms, Twitter, LinkedIn. Yeah, very much looking forward to get in touch. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And for everyone tuning in, thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Senior Studio, and we'll catch you next time. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Senior Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Senior Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Seniors Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.